0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Coming up on this week's show, we look back on the best bits of 2021. retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week and has been all throughout 2021 by our good friends at bitmap books now they've actually got some recent reprints that are now in stock on their website including game boy the box art collection their incredible crpg book and amiga a visual compendium we'll talk more about those soon but you can check out their full range of retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 307, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And here it is, our final show of 2021. What a ride it's been. And actually, I'm uh, very pleased that you guys are showing your face again after the absolute thrashing that you got on the quiz last week.
2: Spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, you guys
1: are...
3: You know, it was, it was, it was all a bit of a game I'm used um, to getting thrashed. I just brought Joe into it to, you know, you, you know get, what? get someone else on board.
2: You, I feel like I need, I haven't listened back to it because of the shame. But I feel like you probably got more answers than me on this year. Like every, I say it every year and I I probably sound like such an idiot when I say it, but I'm like, I know all of their ones. I just don't know our ones.
1: Joe is such a sore loser. I am. No wonder we let him win every year.
2: Yeah, you've got to.
1: However, I do have to do a little correction because it turns out that, that I did make a bit of a mistake in one of the questions. And we've had a few people get in touch on Twitter. It turned out, I said there was two games on the CDI, um, Faces of Evil and Wand of Gamelon, um, two Zelda games. It turns out there are actually three Zelda games. And I believe that Mark and Neil actually said one of them in their answer, and I marked it as incorrect, and that was Zelda's Adventure. So that means we've actually reworked out the scores again, and uh, Joan Ravi won!
4: Yeah, hey. Hey. we
1: wish <laughs> but it did close the window a little bit so it meant that uh, Mark and Neil got 28 and uh, Paul and Ollie still let it with 30 but you know that gap is narrowed very slightly I've seen uh, Neil um, from RMC has been on Twitter asking his uh, cave dwellers to try and uh, find more questions that we I, got I thought wrong, you but... were going to say
3: asking his lawyers to um, <laughs> get
5: involved <laughs> <It> could
1: be <laughs> yeah it could be the next step it's getting closer now but uh, it's just a bit of fun everyone so uh, yeah but it, it is always a bit of a highlight for the year even coming Last guys, I think you've got to agree. Oh, yeah, I love it, legal, wasn't it? Absolutely yeah, great fun. Now, uh, this year 2021, of course, it's been another weird year with the way that the world's been, um, you know, lockdowns around the world, COVID still, better, though, on. hasn't
3: it? it's It's been weird, but it's
1: a bit better, a bit more bearable. That's what I'd say. Or we're just getting used to it now, but it's kind of just the last two years the yeah, yeah, have merged into one for me. Which is why, I mean, this is a bit of a tradition that um every year we kind of look back on the, the biggest news stories and the biggest guests that we've had over the last year. <laughs> There's so many I was looking at, I was like, was that twenty twenty or was that twenty twenty one? It's all felt like one long year. But there were, I mean, a lot of incredible things that have come out of this year. Of course, um, one of the main things was the Games Master reboot that I know we've talked about so much on the show. uh, But all those three episodes are now available to watch on YouTube. And I think, you know, just giving a quick overall verdict of it, as um, a couple of guys that watched Games Master back in the day, Ravi and I were very happy with the reboot. Joe, as a new viewer, you enjoyed it as well.
2: Yeah, I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Hopefully,
3: they'll actually extend it to more than three episodes, which would be nice. You
1: know, the reaction I've seen online, it does feel like everyone... I said this to a friend of mine. I said, you know, if um, if Games Master hadn't have been taken off air back in the late 90s and it continued to this day, this is probably what it would have ended up like.
2: Yeah, I am. from what I've seen of it and stuff like that, I, I would agree with that. I think what's quite funny is, you know, we don't want to go too much into it. It's just like people are like, oh, it wasn't retro games, but... it back then it wasn't retro games no they were modern games <laughs> for the time period um you know and i was probably one of those people who expected it to be retro maybe but i wasn't surprised when it wasn't i don't know but yeah i definitely enjoyed it mm-hmm. uh, episode two and three out i've only seen the first one. No, oh, yeah they're all, all up oh, and yeah, it yeah, yeah. have yeah, them got out
3: some catching up to do and to be uh, honest you say it wasn't retro but this year was absolutely mental for retro like Technology and developments. It it was a a crazy year where retro's pretty much blowing up again.
1: Well, I think, you know, if if there wasn't such a big buzz around retro, Games Master probably wouldn't have resurfaced. You know, I think it's because of that interest that people have got in that era that probably is why it came back in the first place. And we're talking about other things as well. Obviously, the Grand Theft Auto (laughs) trilogy remake that we've, uh, we've talked about on the show over the last couple of weeks, that they are still patching to oblivion and trying to get it sorted out so i wonder how many people are going to find that in their christmas stocking this year
6: no, I've got
1: no. a feeling I will. <laughs> with, with a load of coal. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been the booby prize on the quiz. It could have been. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> The Pi Storm, another big thing as well. and um, that kind of made Amiga accelerators affordable for everyone. Uh, we talked about the Pi Storm. I did an entire video on that back in the summer as well. We've got a new Dizzy game, wonderful Dizzy. We had the Oliver Twins on at the start of the year too. So, I mean, some incredible things have come out of 2021 and actually we're going to be looking back on a few of the news stories and our favorite guests because i mean god looking back i don't know if you're the same i know you are joe i often forget who we've had on until i dig back into the back catalog and i'm like oh my god yeah it's been an incredible year for guests
2: it's been an absolutely incredible year, and I have literally had to sit back and re listen to like five episodes <laughs> over the last couple of days because I have completely forgot who we've had on just because my memory has become so terrible this year. So it's becoming a dad I have to remember everything <laughs> sleep but, deprivation, sleep, sleep deprivation. But we've had some incredible guests on, you know. We always, I, I, you know, without sounding too big headed, we always do, but you know, to with how everything was, you know, with in and out of lockdowns and stuff like that through 2021 as well you know a lot of these guests stepped up and you know Ravi got some really really big guys in you know so it's been an
3: awesome year. This year I've I've felt that we've filled the gaps like there's been people that we've always wanted to get on the podcast and you know we've been hammering for like four or five years like come on come on and this year it like seemed to just rain amazing guests and uh, hopefully we're going to continue that into next year. And, uh, yeah,
1: you're right. In, in a way, the pandemic's kind of helped in some ways, because often we'd reach out to people and they'd be like, oh, I would do it. But, you know, I'm in Berlin doing a talk this weekend then I'm at a gaming event in Paris a week after. And, you know, they didn't have time to sit down. But well, they didn't have poly-based. setups.
3: They didn't have Zoom yeah. setups and, uh, you know, microphones and video cameras at home. But now they've got um, all of that set up because they've been doing yeah. online meetings. So it's easy just to kind of pop in and uh, do an interview, which. You know we're really thankful for because we've had some stunners on this
1: show of course there have been new console releases this year as well cast your mind back uh, to january when the first review started to come out after the kickstarter backers got them in their hand and i actually got hold of one of these and did a video on it back in the summer and this is the atari vcs console should we look back to that initial review back in january go for it <laughs> We did a Patrons Hangout, actually, the other day, and um, I think someone in the Patrons Hangout was a bit like, uh, we're talking about the Atari VCS, mm. the new version of it, and they're like, oh, that's Vaporware. And then someone else was like, now people have started to get them. So the new Atari VCS console, the new version of it that, you know, kind of looks a bit like the classic wood grain console and uh, keeps its name, has started to land into the hands of people who backed it on Indiegogo.
2: Yeah, um, It seems rarer than the PS5, (laughs) which I think is quite funny. And it's still not there for public purchase. They're saying summer 2021 for that. But yeah, it's like you say, it's landing on some people's doorsteps, but with no kind of like notification of, of it, it just kind of, it's just appearing apparently that they they don't know it's coming. Um, So people are reviewing it and getting their hands on it. And, you know, I'm not a technical guy, but long story short, you know, from what you guys have told me and what the kind of the hangout guys have told me and stuff. It is pretty much exactly what we expected it to be um, when we've discussed it in the past. It's just kind of like a, a nice-ish pre-made computer with Atari Classics built in. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's it's a nice review that they've done on uh, Gaming Revolution, so they're looking at all of it. But you're right, it's like a kind of mythical beast. It just uh, turns up and...
1: Uh, I love that. You're waiting for your Morrison's delivery. The doorbell rings, and all of a sudden you're like, oh. There's a VCS. I remember ordering that.
3: But I still want my ice creams. <laughs> well, this review's really interesting. It's saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems which we fully expected. Hmm. And um, I'm saying there's a lot of stuff to do with connectivity issues, actually. So even the controllers for the VCS are having problems with connectivity The Wi-Fi is dropping out as well, Um, so they're preferring to use the Ethernet port. Mm
7: -hmm. Um, I mean,
1: That that could just be this guy's individual unit.
3: We don't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He uh, could have tons of interference in his house. Who knows? Um, But also they're saying it comes pre-installed with the Atari suite. That's the kind of only software, so there's no real killer apps. They do say that they are going to be bringing exclusive titles to the um, Atari store. But another thing that I found really interesting is um, they were talking about how it was, you know, you could boot multiple OSs on there.
2: Mm. Um,
3: but it actually turns out that the BIOS is is locked. So wow. you can boot multiple OSs, but you have to do it off like a USB stick or you have to do it in a way that you're kind of
1: defeating the BIOS. You know, it's it, I think it's password locked. So... um yeah, I think it's Secure Boot, isn't it? And that kind of limits the amount of operating systems you can run. I think they've got to kind of be built for it. And that yeah. Windows can and Ubuntu kind of thing. But yeah, a lot won't be able to. Yeah, some of those kind of Linux distributions and stuff like
3: that. So, you know, this is this is a version that's going out to backers. It's not the public version yet. Hopefully with some firmware updates, it can do it. But they are kind of saying what we thought, which was, you know, this is going to be an oddity And there's a bit of a scathing statement at the end where he says, I don't even think it's going to be as popular as the Ooyah, which is uh, a
1: bit of a killer, killer statement there. I mean, looking at the specs of it, and I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before. The thing about it is when this was announced a couple of years ago, it kind of looked like, you know, mid-level then. Um, But he's saying in this review, I mean, you've got an AMD Ryzen embedded chip in there. Um, An R16606G with the Vega 3 chipset, which is a system on a chip. Um, He's saying really, though, that's kind of a mid-range PC from a few years ago. So talking about performance, you're only really getting comparative performance to like a a mid-range desktop PC. There's nothing amazingly powerful about this machine. You've got eight gigabytes of RAM, which is looking a bit anemic in 2021. You can upgrade it, but interestingly... It turns out that upgrading the RAM and the internal storage isn't quite as simple as you think. I mean, essentially, you've got to completely strip the whole system down to its motherboard by the looks of it to get access to them. So it's not something that, you know, changing the hard disk and the RAM for most end users, you know, like on the PlayStation, you can just open a door and put a new disk in. This is going to require a little bit more effort than that thing. And then you've got this um, operating system, which I know you were concerned about this, Ravi, when we mentioned it before, what the Atari VCS system software would be like. Unfortunately, I remember you saying that you're a bit worried that it wouldn't perform very well. It turns out that the first version of it, according to this review, doesn't perform that well at all. Um, You've only got a couple of things on there. But he said it's, you know, even when you put it in 4K mode, the user interface is stuttering and lagging when it's on that resolution. Um, You get Atari Vault Volume 1 with a couple of classic Atari games in there as well. There's stuff like YouTube and AntStreams on there by the looks of it as well. You've got your media apps like Plex and Disney Plus. You can run all those on there. But I mean, you can run those on like an Amazon Fire stick. So it's nothing that anyone's going to buy this machine for. And the PC mode, that means you can boot into Windows 10. Really, you're just getting a low to mid-range performance PC booting into Windows 10. So for the price, I mean, how much was this retailing for when it came out? I think it was like nearly $400 we mentioned. It's interesting as well. I've seen people trying to run Cyberpunk on there.
3: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah no and problem. they're like, look, Cyberpunk's on the VCS, and it's just really slow.
1: So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of is what we expected it to be. I mean, there are people on this article here who are kind of scathing the review a, a bit, saying, you know, your complaints are stupid. This is a pre-retail early release. Um, your review's disingenuous clickbait, someone is saying here. Um, so, I mean, it is. It, it's a very early first version of it. And some things can be improved, there can be more applications on the store. The problem I think they're going to have is they've got to get a big enough crowd on there to attract those developers. There are some things, though, like the hardware, that limited hardware that's not looking very powerful in 2021. There's nothing they can do to fix that. Just release the case. We'll all buy that. <laughs> that's what i said It does look cool. And again, I mean, we, we mentioned it last time. If this was, like, you know, maybe 199 or £150, pounds, I'd probably buy one because it'd be a cool little media PC to put in my living room and run Plex on it and play a few emulated games and that kind of thing. But for $400, I mean, it's a bit of an ask, I think.
2: Yeah, like like you say, if they just released it for like 150 quid or just released the shell for like 80 quid or 100 quid or something, I'm sure it'd probably make so much more money than trying to release it as a a console. But we'll see. We'll see how it does when we talk about it this time next year or this in the summer. (laughs)
1: So there you go, the Atari VCS, which um, I don't know if after the reviews and the uh, general word around that system, you guys attempted to ask for uh, ask for one from Centre this year.
2: I've got two coming. I'm joking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what though, and it's sh- it's it's a shame to say it, and I know there have been a few updates on it. I haven't set mine up. And since yeah, uh, about
3: we we like to rag on it as well, and I know there's some VCS yeah. fans out there, so you know it's 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 good to see that Atari's back and they've been doing a lot of activity this year haven't they they've been absolutely everywhere and uh yeah you know they've they've even been releasing like physical games but also going into cryptocurrency and hotel Moby and, games oh God all of that
8: yeah,
1: yes, yeah, so it's been a very interesting year for Atari and you know if we're looking forward to twenty twenty two I would say that is probably the one company where I've got no idea what they're gonna do yeah. next
3: yeah that's that's true <laughs> unpredictable yeah, it could be any-
1: Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, talking about other console announcements this year as well, it was a year that we found out the Amiga is getting made into a mini console with the announcement back in the summer of the A500 Classic. Now let's get into this story that's been absolutely everywhere because we've been looking every week, you know, we do our little thing, you know. we, We chat on Facebook Messenger, like, you guys spotted any retro news this week? You know, Joe and I saved them in our Facebook Saved section and we put them in a google doc and everything today we've been looking around and literally everything was just amiga mini well could i just do something that i've waited for 28 years to do <laughs> well, you just, built this up now this better be good
2: amiga is back baby <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that, that was worth the wait. <laughs> it never went it never went ravi you guys you guys have been keeping it alive <laughs> but this is now um obviously it's the guys who brought us the 64 and um, which was the Commodore 64 mini that came out a few years ago now yeah. then they made the maxi version which was a full size essentially a Commodore 64 replica FPGA based full keyboard on there as well uh, this one is one of the mini ones though now you actually get some really cool stuff with this
3: and also you know it's 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 kind of taken 28 years to get to this point because nothing commercially has kind of been released from the Amiga because there's been legal battles and stuff so this is the closest thing to anything official you're going to get. But you know what? This is a mini console, and I don't really think it's aimed at me and Dan, who already have Amigas coming out of our ears. It's aimed at someone like Joe, who is Mm. a brand new user, and you were actually looking at getting a CD32, weren't you? So uh,
2: what do you think of this machine, and uh, what what, what appeals about it and what doesn't? Okay, well, I'll start with what doesn't appeal about it is... um that they're trying to keep the pricing with Amiga going, you know, with it being nice and expensive compared to other consoles. I think it's quite a lot for a mini console that's coming out at £120. Um, which if
1: you try and get an Amiga 500 though, yeah, um, you know, good I, condi- some of them go for about 300 quid boxed, you know, good condition I d- I d- there.
2: I do get that. But if you want to use that same argument with like the Sega Mega Drive Mini, which was like 60 quid at release. And at yeah. the time you could get a Mega Drive for like 30 quid. But I get it. You get all the games of it. And what I do like about it which is one of the many one of the reasons I've always been kind of put off old school computers and stuff. Is you it's going to be a plug and play. You're not going to have to piss about, mm. you know, as Ravi just said. You know, changing all the hardware on it, pissing about with cards and stuff like that. It is just going to be. I'm assuming plug it in and you go ahead and you play it. You plug it into your TV. Um yeah. I really like that you get the controller, the mouse, and the keyboard. I'm not familiar with. Um, controllers. In, in, so I don't in know if that's
3: version. Uh, the keyboard, like, because when they released the C sixty four Mini, they had a, a, a the keyboard wasn't working, so you had to plug an external one in. Mm-hmm. And then they released one called the Maxi, which had a working keyboard. And I guess that's because of the price range, like you know, to get all those keys going and everything. Yeah, and the but, size, <laughs> and yeah. the size, yeah, yeah. That, that
2: yeah. I get, I get it. I get it. I was just saying. I think it, it's expensive, but I do understand. um I will probably buy one, like I do really like the look of it, and I like the sound of the games on there as well. Um, It's going to have 25 games on it, and they revealed 12 so far. Um, But what I really, really, really like about it is this is one of the first kind of big release mini consoles I've seen where they are actually advertising that you can put your own USB stick and run your own Amiga ROMs on it yeah like yeah, and also firmware updates so for, yeah for, for hackability you don't, you know. yeah you don't you don't see that i mean you can do it with like the playstation mini and stuff but that's not something that they were like openly saying they can do whereas this seems to be pretty open like yeah you know stick a usb stick in and play some other amiga roms on there um but yeah i'm really looking forward to playing a bit of Zool, worms chaos engine um and then also simon the sorcerer one you guys always go on about but yeah, I think it looks cool and I will agree. I, I don't think it's aimed at like Dan, I don't think it's aimed at Ravi. I think it is aimed at people like me who never quite got into it, or some people like your brother, Dan, who are nostalgic for it, he might pick one up yeah. and be like, Yeah, you know what, I've not I've not had an Amiga in twenty eight years. I'll, I'll I'll buy one and I'll buy one of these and play it, you know. I think I think it will do it'll do all right.
3: And, but- and I think it will increase the user base of people interested in Amiga. Like, you know, if if, if you've like someone's mom's going around and goes oh you used to have that and then buys it then other people may go oh i'll actually get one of the original machines or i'll get one of these new faster ones or something so i think
1: it opens it up a bit well let's talk a bit about what comes with it then so you've got the amiga what's called the a500 mini there's no amiga branding on here Mm -hmm. um because as we know you know the world of amiga copyrights and licenses, they're very, very complicated. Mm. They've pretty much been litigation and court cases going on for like, what, 25 years yeah, now? Yeah, 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 since um, come Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So this is the A500, it's called, but it looks pretty much identical to, if you can imagine an Amiga 500, um, smaller than your mobile phone, actually, really small little device. It comes with a replica of the original Amiga 500 mouse that is affectionately known as the tank mouse um, by the looks of it, a USB version. And there's actually a photo of the A500 Mini next to the mouse and it looks really cute. You know, it's really small. And that's essential as well, you know. They
3: could have packed it yeah. with a D-pad that would mean that you'd control up and down and like the mouse play, but that really wouldn't work with games like Simon the Sorcerer. And the or si- Lemmings, imagine yeah. trying to play that with a yeah. D-pad.
1: <laughs> but then you get a controller with it as well, which um, this has been a bit controversial. Some people are like "Cause Most of us played Amiga games with a joystick originally that said i do know a lot of people that use mega drive pads on them back then and the this is actually a pad that you get with it not a joystick um it looks like kind of a um an evolution of the cd32 controller yeah and the the original
3: cd32 controllers were absolutely awful like the d-pads were really bad on them this
1: looks nicer and this looks a
3: lot nicer a lot more playable so actually even the controller alone would be something that I'd be interested in.
1: Well, it looks like a cross between a CD32 controller and a SNES controller, really, you Now the colour scheme on it. Nice D-pad on there. You've got the two buttons in the middle, like the CD32. Then you've got the uh, the different colour buttons that's quite like a SNES. Um, shoulder buttons on the top as well. Um, I, what I haven't read is, because I know there are some kind of um, third-party controllers available for the Amiga, where you can actually map, like, say the Y button to be the up button. Because a lot of Amiga yeah. games, platforms up in particular, yeah. yeah, it was up to jump, which if you can remap this, so like you could use one of the buttons to jump, that would make, you know, I think a lot of the complaints that I've seen today would be answered. People are like, you know, trying to jump up on a platform or with a control pad can be very fiddly. But yeah, I mean, apart from that, it is what you expect, I think. Like you said, Joe, you can put a USB stick in there. It's got WHD load support, which lets you um, install Amiga games to a hard disk. You can just download loads of them, put the stick in, and um, really enhance your library. And even though this looks like an Amiga 500, apparently it is going to be able to play later Amiga games, like um, the AGA chipset of the Amiga 1200 as well. So a 1200-only game should work on here too. So really, this is going to give you access to... Pretty much every Amiga game, you know, all the mainstream ones should run great. It's it's got three
3: ports at the back, so I guess Mm. like one's gonna be for the mouse. And then you could have two joystick or or gamepad ports, which means you can do that two player co op experience, which is like Mm. essential with games like Chaos Engine and stuff, you know, when you sit together with your mate or speedball, yeah. And then you could use any any USB
1: controller in there, I reckon. Yeah, and you got HDMI output and just a power connector, and that is it. So yeah, really it is. I mean, it's an Amiga emulator that's in a cute little case. It's plug and play. And really this is going to make life, you know, as simple as using a, a Mega Drive or a Super Nintendo Mini. So really it is a, a small consoleized plug and play Amiga, which I think, you know, if you haven't got a background with the platform, which is a complaint I've seen today, people are like, well, can it boot Workbench? Can I you know, you can plug a keyboard in. So I mean it probably could, but it's not aimed at that market. You know, this yeah. is aimed at people that are going to see it in game or HMV and yeah, people that maybe owned one 30 years ago or people like Joe that have probably heard a lot about the Amiga, you know, probably threw us rattling on about it and actually maybe want to experience that world. And you know, admittedly, it is quite pricey for, for these kind of systems. But at £120, I think it is still affordable for people that want to get hold of
3: it and experience it. Also for young people, like, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying this is ideal for me to give to the kids and have the kids, like they don't want them on their original hardware if the kids have this machine and they could spill Coca-Cola all over it and
1: they can mental, you know. And, uh, My nephew would be like, can it play Fortnite? Oh, it's rubbish. <laughs> so have we got a release date on this then? It just says 2022. Yeah. Um, but that's all it says. Which isn't far away now, 2022, actually. Yeah,
2: it's it's, it's hard. It's kind of like, is, that in, so is it going to be in four or five months time or is it in a year's time? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. But yeah, it just says 2022 at the moment, but we've got, like I say, twelve games: so Alien Breed, 3D, Another World, um, All-Terrain Racing, Battle Chess. Is that Cadaver? Kickoff to Pinball Dreams, and then Simon the Sorcerer, Speedball, uh, Two Chaos Engine, Worms. Directors Cut and Zool on there. They're big games. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they're. I mean, I'm like you say, I'm not a big Amiga boy, so, but it's I'm, a lot of the team sure
3: seventeen.
2: Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I'm uh, sure games. they're pretty big games.
3: And you know what? I I'm just happy that something's come out because. If 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 something hadn't have come out, it probably would have just been lost in the legacy of time. And you know, it's nice to see the Amiga up there with the other mini consoles, and it and it, it brings a new audience to it as well.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Something like this, I think. You know, just uh, even though you said before, you know, it's not aimed at me and Ravi. Don't know about you, Ravi. I'm going to buy one of these. I just want one in the living room, just to play new games in I'm, going to, buy there these, but I'm going to buy a Mega sixty five as well. <laughs> just <to laughs> have, have the basically. two systems.
3: Yeah. But this will be the drunk one. This will be the one that I spill all my beer all over.
1: <laughs> and we've got a release date on that now. And the new games list actually got announced since we recorded the quiz last week, which obviously we haven't talked about. I know you're a little bit upset about the omission um, the of sensible soccer on there. I,
3: I think that sensible soccer itself on like a stick would sell. Just, you know, because yeah. that's the one that has so many memories associated with it, but also lemmings. You know, but um, it's cool, the games that they've got on there. I think it's a, a good little system, but I, I can really just see, like, you know, a box with Lemmings and Sensible Soccer people going mad. But I shouldn't complain because we've got a good list of games and we've got a an Amiga Mini coming out, and I think that's just going to increase the user base. And to be honest, I was thinking at this point when they announced this that the Mini market's dead, I was thinking, mm. oh, you know, there's not much interest in Minis and stuff, and they seem to have a... Because this is one of the late minis, isn't it? They seem to have kind of um, ridden it and uh, continued that mini market.
1: It kind of feels like to me that there's been a demand for something like this from, God, for about 20 years, you know, from Amiga fans. And thank God it's 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 come out before
3: it's 30 and everyone forgets.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, we're looking here and there's games like, you know, Worms of Directors Cut's been announced as well, which is, you know, to me, the pinnacle of kind of 2D um, Worms games, Quack, which is quite an interesting choice. You know, that, that was a really good game. I think that was Team Seventeen. I've got a feeling. Um, stuff like Zool on there as well. Arcade Pool, another great Team Seventeen game. Alien Breathe 3D's on there a as chaos well. Chaos Engine, which is good. Yeah, yeah. which uh, we've got a release date on that now. It's going to be coming out um, the March twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. So only a few months to wait. Unfortunately, didn't make it for the Christmas market, but hopefully our bank balances have all kind of been recharged a bit after christmas by then
3: well that's been another part of 2021 which has been chip shortages and general shortages everywhere to get stuff out
1: and i've got a feeling this is going to be a gateway drug to get joe into the amiga i'm I'm excited to to see what you Amiga. it's got simon the Sorcerer on it for your wife for my
2: wife for it to play through and then tell me how good it was and then i can pretend i played it no i'm joking i will be playing it
1: (laughs) didn't your wife like play simon the Sorcerer as a kid and you didn't know yeah
2: literally i had absolutely no idea but i like when we were talking about it on the show in August, I kind kind of came downstairs actually. We recorded, and I was like, "Oh yeah, spoke about the Amiga Mini today." And she was like, "Oh, Simon the Sorcerer." and I was like, "What?" <laughs> she was like, "Simon the Sorcerer on the Amiga." I was like, "What? What? How do you know about that?" And she was just like, "When I used to play it on my Amiga." And I was like, "What do you mean on your Amiga? Like it just like blew my mind." It turned out her mum and dad had an Amiga. And they had like Worms, Simon the Sorcerer. Wor- um, so I was say Worms again. That Zool on it. You know, and I was just like, we've been together fifteen years, and I never knew this. Like, it never come up in any sort of conversation <laughs> ever. Her whole family know that I do the podcast, like, and that I'm passionate about gaming. Nope, never thought to mention it ever <laughs> in like fifteen years. So yeah, she wants one, which is you know one of the first times she's ever actually proactively said spend some money on a mini console. So looking
1: forward <laughs> to that. I reckon we kick Joe off the podcast and get her on. Probably.
2: Yeah, maybe it's it, probably <laughs> a good idea. <laughs>
1: And, of course, we finally got a good video game movie this year. I know you and I absolutely love this, Joe. I know you, you you thought it was all right, Ravi. This is Mortal Kombat when it came out back in yeah, the Yeah, yeah, I thought it was all right, yeah. And here's, when the mo- here's the moment when we first got the trailer and uh, analysed it on the show back in the early part of this year. What do you think, Joe?
6: Wow.
2: I've I've got quite a few thoughts about it and, you know, we're not the retro three hour hour, hours, so, you know, I'll try and keep it short. And I know Ravi's got a few few things he wants to say about it, but I think it looks good. I like the look of it. I like the visual style. Um, I love that, you know, they've got all these characters in. I, you know, I think they've got like 10 or 11, 12 characters in there. They've not overdone it with like 30 of them and they've not underdone it with like concentrating on like two or three of them. It looks like from the trailer... Zub Zero is a bad guy and Scorpion's a good guy, which I'm sure is the other way around in the games. I could be wrong. Um it could and, be wrong. Kano a good guy in this. Is Kano a good guy? I don't yeah. know. I thought he was Apparently a bad guy so from in the trailer. Trouble. But All oh, right, interesting. But what I thought was really interesting um is and kind of annoying until I looked into it a little bit more. They've introduced a new character called Cole Young played by Lewis Tan um who seems to be the main character. Now I'm I'm pretty familiar with Mortal, Mortal Kombat. I've played them all. I don't remember anybody called Cole Young in the games. Um, so I was a little bit, oh, for God's sake, not, they're not like they've done with Resident Evil films and introduced their own character and all this kind of stuff, you know. I don't care about him. I want to know about, you know, Liu Kang and Jackson's up 0 who are all in the films, all big characters in the films, but the main character seems to be this Cole Young. However, I'm not going to spoil it. I don't know how true it is or anything, but if you go out there on the internet, he is somebody from Mortal Kombat. He is somebody. So, you know, if you want to check that out, you know, it's on the internet, it's been leaked, the script's been leaked and stuff like that. So which is so it's 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 kinda cool where they're going with it from from what I've read. But Ravi, you you weren't as keen on it as me and Dan, were you? No, I I'm 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 not that into modern action
3: movies. And like mm. look at, looking at this trailer, um, that there's some good points. Like Shogun Assassin, which I count as one of the biggest influencers. Um, halfway through there's a section. Um I'm not sure which enemy it is. I'm not up to date on Mortal Kombat, but this is a total total tribute to shogun assassin Hmm. like the point where he has a blade that goes into the wall and then goes down with the blood that's like one of the famous scenes in uh shogun assassin which was one of those it was actually banned back in the days and it was a direct influence so i think that's quite good but it's just the actors like the way that they're speaking they just seem so bad and like you know i I get that it's an action movie and you're really there for the action and stuff but it it just feels a bit like i don't know high school musical 2 or something like
1: (laughs) i'm gonna have to agree with your point there about i mean there's a moment in the movie and scorpion is my favorite mortal kombat character i know where you're going with this yeah i'm gonna listen, listen to this
2: yeah i don't know what what is that
1: what? Is that Arnie? Arnie's voice. That sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Get down. <laughs> I don't know what to the, I expect him to say to the chopper next.
2: Yeah, I remember hearing that and thinking, what on earth is that? Like, but I guess it's because he's they're being realistic. He's he's muffled by his mask. <laughs> like I don't I know. I thought, you no, know, they, they could have done
3: this it. really well. It like it does look good and there's so many reference to the old Japanese movies here, like and you know, with with the kind of sunset going and, and the shadows and stuff, silhouettes and stuff like that. But they could have done what they did with like Cobra Kai or Stranger Things and they could have had a fat synth going through that and then they could have gone kind of a bit like
2: retro-y. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I'm sure towards the start of the trailer, you can kind of hear in the background the Mortal Kombat song, like a kind of like sort of remix of it. I could be completely wrong. I've only seen the trailer twice. I know I, what you want, uh, Joe. You want Yeah, it. I, I do. I want it. I want it in there. <laughs> so we'll see.
1: You know, a lot of people are saying online that this looks like really cheesy and stuff. And people are saying it looks fun. Um, but people obviously don't remember the original Mortal Kombat movie, if you want cheesy. <laughs> yeah. Even though that was a load of fun. But I think it kind of feels like this movie has grown with the Mortal Kombat series. I mean, the first one, yeah, it was Naf, but it really felt like, you know, it was a, a tribute to the games as they were then. But looking at this, I mean, there's one bit in the trailer that I thought was incredible. When you see Sub-Zero freezing his own blood and using that as a knife, that is something I could imagine being in one of the model, modern Mortal Kombat games.
6: Yeah, yeah. You, you
1: see, I don't like those games. So I are
2: scary. Oh, Ravi, get off, man. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> Too much of a wimp. Too much of a bloody wimp. Yeah, man. And apparently there is fatalities in the film. Like, you know, obviously it's not going to be like, I'm guessing it's not going to be quite like finish him and they're stood there like dizzy well, The, the or actors have to remember the combo Yeah really. <laughs> but apparently there is like you know people do actually get killed and they're going to get like you say splattered with ice I think there'll be a, like a babality <laughs> Babality <laughs> <laughs> Ravi will go see it if there's a babality in it <laughs> i give you a gift There you go <laughs>
1: So we hyped for the second part though of Mortal Kombat
2: I, I, I enjoyed Mortal Kombat I am hyped I thought the whole I don't want to spoil it but the main character thing was a bit odd Mm. Um, but i I did really enjoy it um i'm just sad that there was no hype for the resident evil film that came out i know
1: that just came and like i you're the only person i know ever. i think i'm
2: the only person who's seen it (laughs) 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 like we touched on it on the podcast like last week um but yeah no mortal kombat man i don't want to take away from that I, i thought it was really awesome it was fun but you know spoilers 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 skip 10 seconds ahead if you don't want to hear it but just thought it was interesting that it isn't actually the Mortal Kombat tournament (laughs) Mm, it's it's set before it so I'm looking forward to the second one to see the tournament and to be honest it's not
3: been an amazing year for movies as well because so many have been held back
2: Yeah, yeah that's true and Mortal Kombat is one of the ones where they actually took the plunge and just thought you know what we'll stick it on Amazon and we'll stick it you know for people to pay for you know at home which I think they should have done with a lot of films So I'm glad they did that. You know, I I think I rented it on Amazon. Uh, In fact, no, actually, I think I might have seen it in other ways. Uh, But yeah, I really enjoyed it.
1: (laughs) And next year, of course, more video game movies coming up. We've got um, the new Mario movie, um, Sonic 2, which we talked about in the podcast Mm a couple of weeks ago. So a lot more to look forward to in the next 12 months. Now, before we get into uh, some more stories that have been the highlights of 2021, and look back on some of our favorite guests of the year as well. Let's give a moment to give a big thank you to a big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, our friends at monsterjoysticks.com. Now, we love monster joysticks, they offer a wide range of quality arcade joysticks, not only for your modern machines, your PCs, your Raspberry Pis, but also for retro machines as well. And I love the sound they make. Oh, listen to that boys. <laughs> Lovely Isn't that just bliss. Oh, beautiful on the ears. And we've all got monster joysticks as well. I know, actually, um, you got a little package through the door in the last week, Joan. That's going to be your little project over Christmas to assemble your own?
2: I have, yeah. And I, I'm very nervous about assembling it myself, Um but I have been reassured many times by the both of you that it is actually very, very simple and it does just clip together. Um, yep. So I'm trusting that. So if I can do it, I'm sure anybody else can do it because I'm a Muppet. But yeah, I've, I've, I've had it out of the box and just, you know, playing with some of the parts and stuff like that, you can just tell it is top quality. And like you say, those micro switches, man, they're amazing.
3: And you, you've you got the model where you can put a Raspberry Pi in it. So I kind of... yeah. Got an image on a Raspberry Pi, chucked it to you, and you're going to be able to put that in there and have it as a like standalone little kind
1: of arcade unit, essentially. Yeah,
2: my own, I kind of like standalone arcade cabinet in the palm of my hand,
1: essentially, which is just amazing. Can you imagine having something like that when you were a kid? If someone it's, had told it, you you could have that, you'd be like, "Oh no it, way!"
2: It's mind blowing. Like I'm still, yeah. mind, I'm, <laughs> you know, even these things have been around for a little while now, but like, yeah, absolutely mind blowing that you can just have like this amazing hardware that can do that for you.
1: So they do these uh, retro gaming joystick kits and it works with everything from your classic computers like the Amiga, the Atari ST, Commodore 64, the Spectrum. They do versions for consoles too like the Mega Drive, CD32, there's a PC Engine version as well. And what we're talking about then, these all-in-one nine-button Raspberry Pi arcade sticks where you actually put the Raspberry Pi inside the joystick and it gives you a truly portable arcade quality experience and they've got deluxe kits that you can get with the genuine Sanwa arcade parts it gives that lovely click designed to survive the most extreme usage and you've all seen me playing games like you know Golden Axe or uh, Mortal Kombat when I lose this thing's had a bit of a ragged rag. <laughs> it survived Dan's raging. <laughs> exactly and it survived um, really high precision parts available as well and they do more budget-friendly arcade part options too. Assembly is so easy you don't need a soldering iron, nothing like that just a screwdriver and you know we can put these together in about god took me about 10-15 minutes to put mine together ravi if you're about to say
3: yeah yeah i i put yeah. mine together and i've got an amiga one which is absolutely yeah. amazing because you can reprogram the um up to jump basically nice. little switch on the back changes it to a button which is uh, so useful for some games
1: so why don't you treat yourself and of course support the podcast head to their website monster joysticks.com now, going back to the start of the year, do you remember this was all over the um, the general news websites as well? That GameStop, which obviously is a, a massive gaming store all across America mainly, um, that they were in really bad trouble. And all of a sudden, they had this massive surge in stock. It turned out thanks to Reddit. Now, this next story, I must admit, um, made me feel rather thick when I heard about this last week. Because, I mean, we've been covering the demise of the game store, in particular GameStop in America, who, you know, last year tried to do that, um, you know, transforming a few of their stores into retro gaming lounges, you know, to try and get people back in there. Then obviously the pandemic struck and they're really struggling now. But then all of a sudden Their stock price actually went through the roof last week. Um, And I know, Ravi, you've been keeping a close eye on this because it's not just GameStop. There are also a few other companies from the past that seem to be getting propped up by people on Reddit who are investing in them.
3: Yeah, I'm going to try and explain it. And I'm known worldwide for my business acumen. So this is going to be really accurate.
1: (laughs) We we, we call him Ravi Sugar.
3: (laughs) Off the back of this, Ravi's going to be like, right, this is what you need to do in the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) Send me all your stocks. No, um, I've been looking at this and... The way I could, I'm going to try and explain this is simplify sorry, it, man. Because sorry, when, sorry
2: if I get cause, this all Because when Dan said he feels thick, I feel thick on every bloody episode of this show. So <laughs> okay, really so simplify it. That is the only smart me. one among us. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll
3: simplify it. So, you, you know, GameStop, like you said, they were trying to uh, kind of get people in, they were trying to turn it into this more of a destination venue. Mm-hmm. And then COVID struck, so people weren't buying games. Stop. So, what happens is when that happens, you get uh, a lot of short sellers who basically go, Oh, this company is going to go bankrupt. So, we are going to buy loads of stock, short sell our stock, and say, Oh, okay, it's going to go bankrupt. So, let's make a bit of money out of it going bankrupt. Now, what seemed to happen was this is usually really predictable. What seemed to happen was the Reddit guys were like, No, we don't want GameStop to go bankrupt. So what we're going to do is all team together, put a little bit of money into the stocks and basically, well, a lot of money into the stocks, and basically boost it. So what happened was all these kind of stock people and hedge fund people that were predicting GameStop to go down suddenly, all their predictions were completely wrong, and they lost seventy billion pounds, and it's absolutely mental. And then this start, this trend started happening. With other stores, so Blockbuster, which, remember, Blockbuster has one store in Bend, Mm. Oregon, (laughs) went up 700%, which was just mad because people were like, just buy Blockbuster stock, (laughs) just going crazy. And then Nokia as well. So I think, like, obviously this is a whole financial thing, but the interesting thing is the choice of companies here. And I think this is like, you know, people are saying, oh, these companies don't have value anymore. And this is kind of Reddit and and the internet saying, actually, they do have a bit of a value. You know, it might be different to what you guys expect. And I was going to ask you guys, if you think there's a company in the UK uh, like that would kind of, wimpy do with one of these surgeons wimpy would be a perfect (laughs) example everybody everybody knows wimpy it was in america that would be a perfect example wimpy maplins um yeah maplins yeah Woolworths. yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know you
1: know the thing that i don't get here now i've been seeing this everywhere does this actually help the companies though
3: no, I don't think it does actually, because it's because right. you know people. Once you get to that level with all the stock, you have to sell it to someone, don't you? So even if you've made all this profit, who wants to buy GameStop stock at like three hundred and twenty-five a share? It's, I think it's more of a kind of approving a point thing. What uh, makes there may be a, a few I, I, people I, that have made money on it, uh, but I, I don't. You know, it, it definitely brings a lot of attention to GameStop, like all the yeah. company, all the outlets around the wilder uh, talking about it at the moment i even like turned on the radio and they were like gamestop i was like geez wow because
1: i've been seeing people saying all oh, that's it gamestop is saved now thanks to reddit but then i've seen other angles on it where it was essentially you know a group of guys well quite a, quite a large community on reddit who essentially wanted to uh, stick it to the traders on wall street and like you know yeah, show yeah I, I, really. I
3: think that's what it was it was just yeah. like saying you know you guys don't think there's value in it we think there's value in these nostalgic kind of things and uh then just kind of showing that the system's a bit broken if this can happen to be honest
2: i, I, I don't know the name of the guy but didn't some billionaire wall street guy who's british win on like bbc news the other day and he was just like you're ruining it for the billionaires you're ruining it for us all <laughs> <laughs> he was just like you're all just sat at home on your benefits while um while hard people like me are losing their money and you just Yeah, watch. I think
3: well well I think initially <laughs> they, they went out and they did that with the companies, but yeah, then there's been a lot of stuff where like the app that they were using to buy the stock suddenly suddenly stopped letting them buy them. Is it Robin? Were Hood trying or to, yeah, yeah, trying to protect the um the investors rather than the public. And that yeah. that, that that's what really enraged people. But I think mm. the main thing Main point for the Retro Hour is these are nostalgic companies and people yeah. are uh, kind of bringing attention to them, which uh, is, is pretty mad. And we're recording this on Saturday the 31st and this is moving really fast, guys. Uh, Sunday the 31st of January. This is moving really fast. 2021. Yeah, yeah. So, so by the time this comes out, it could be completely different and who knows which companies could come back. We should start some
1: uh, retro hour stock, we? I, I just had this vision of like, you know, the CEO of GameStop, like waking up last Monday morning and be like, what the hell? Looking at his phone, it's gone up like, you know, 2000% overnight or something. Commodore, where so. are you, man? Commodore, come on. I think there is actually, yeah, there isn't there a Commodore that makes, Mobile phones or something yeah, in yeah, something somewhere like in Europe. So, yeah,
3: because, yeah, yeah, you know, Magnavox or something could go huge. <laughs> <who knows?
1: laughs> well, the power of the internet. So, yeah, like you said, definitely an interesting story, something we haven't seen before. So we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that developing story. That was so bizarre, that story, wasn't it? It was weird.
3: Like in, in these crazy times, you know, people are going for like crypto and stocks and all of this kind of stuff. And I'd say like there was a huge surge in Reddit, but uh, in in GameStop stock, but actually it's, it's gone back down again now <laughs> by the yeah. time we're reporting this. So if, if you were in that surge, I hope you sold when it was high. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it essentially turned out to be a massive trolling, didn't it, of uh, of GameStop, really, I guess. Yeah,
3: it was It was kind and of gaming it. It was like a video yeah. game in itself. <laughs> Very bizarre.
1: Uh, something else that came out, I mean, obviously, the Giga leak has been the thing, the gift that's kept on giving all throughout the year. But obviously, we've got a massive PlayStation leak as well that we talked about back in the summer, where 747 prototype games, many of which are playable, were actually released. <laughs> Yeah, this we
2: we have actually we're a bit PlayStation heavy on this episode, aren't we, Ravi? But um, <laughs> it, it is all It's relevant. way it full sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it? It's funny. So this is the first story about PlayStation. So this is massive. This is this is one of the biggest leaks I can think of. You know, recently it's probably as as big as the Nintendo leak. We've mentioned these guys before. What are they? Called? Is it Hidden Palace? Yeah, yeah, Hid, Hid, yeah. Hidden Palace have released this. Um, this is a massive leak of 747 prototype games leaked from the, PS- from the PlayStation 2. So this is, like, all the different versions of, like, games that came out, essentially, or games that never came out. It's a complete mis- mismatch of, like, of all different, like, you know, different translations of games and stuff like that. But essentially, this is from one guy's collection who spent the last couple of years kind of, you know, buying and getting a hold of from, like, you know, ex-PlayStation developers and stuff all the prototypes well, and stuff. Well, I've got some details here. So it's yeah. it's called
3: Project Deluge. It's got its, got it, its own yeah. kind of name. And a lot of these titles are like prototype versions of mm. games that are out there, retail versions. But, um, you know, they're the prototypes. So they may have levels in there that weren't in there mm-hmm. later on. They may have assets that have been removed or changed. So I think this is going to be really interesting once fans get through this and kind of, break down what's in these games um it's gonna you know bring up some new information and uh, maybe cool little facts and stuff you know all the fact hunters on youtube will be really excited about this one yeah um looking at it you're right it was it was actually from um the old q a department um, yeah so they were backups and it was one person you're right who single-handedly uh took possession of these and uh kind of copied every single one. Mm-hmm. Now they had a huge amount of data. So they asked um friend of the show, Jason Scott from the Internet Archive to take a look at it. And this data was just full of retail versions as well. You know, the the, the prototypes were kind of hidden Mixed, in it with stuff. They? Yeah. 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 So they ended up creating a a, a program that would look for the codes on it and the meter data and then actually remove all the retail versions mm. and create this absolutely crazy list it brings it to a total of 860
2: gigabytes of data but what well. <laughs> gets me is they're saying this 747 games is only a part of it it's not all of them that's just what they've released so far apparently there's even more out there like thousands or more for yeah there or, might be half built
3: ones that haven't yeah. been you know found with this tool like this tool's just kind of scraped it and then manually yeah. you might be able to find some more oh, it, it's a mad archive there's a yeah. huge
2: list here that i sent you well, earlier this is the thing that like you were saying you know the game alias uh every you know that's definitely dan's favorite game but the game alias there's like 20 versions of it on there because it's like the different builds of the game which is crazy. So how many PlayStation 2 games was there? It was a good couple of thousand. If you got to think there might be like 10 versions, 10 prototypes of like Final Fantasy X-2, you know, for people to go through. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm expecting them to probably keep releasing like hundreds and hundreds more of these.
3: And there's like, also it looks like there's a lot of preview versions in there. So there's like versions that went out to the press. Yeah. Rev- the, review copies. And, the E3 uh, versions as well of like Crash Bandicoot and stuff like that mad it's it, amazing to see and you know what a momentous effort and kind of contacting this one person and then that one person preserving it all uh
2: fantastic <laughs> he's, he's just saying like yeah i've got like a thousand gigabytes of playstation just two imagine games. how much it costs in uh in cds <laughs> oh, oh, I'm god, yeah. that! Oh, god oh, God! <laughs>
1: It is cool though because I mean obviously the PlayStation 2 the biggest selling console in history mm. and you know when you get a glimpse into all these different versions of the games because you always saw it in magazines or you know around that area you'd read it on websites as well um, kind of looks at new games that were coming out and then often they'd be released and they'd be totally different. And I remember a lot of times looking at games and thinking, oh, you know, it it looked much better in the preview. So it's going to be interesting. Even just, you know, you're talking games like, you know, Spyro and Crash Bandicoot, kind of seeing how they changed over time and what those early ideas were for these titles. I think, you know, that's fascinating, isn't it?
3: Oh, yeah, it's amazing. And um, like, you know, was it it CDs or
2: or was it DVD on the PlayStation? Like this shows Uh, my my lack of knowledge, you know. (laughs) Yeah, it was maybe both, they were, I think some some of them would be. They'd have the black, you know, the, like the PS one on one side, you know, on the the reverse, and then some of them with DVD, weren't they? Yeah, like blue, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But oh, I think wow. yeah. I think after a first couple of years, they all they were all DVD, weren't they?
3: Imagine also, like you know, they're talking about some of them being localization ports as well and stuff. Maybe there might be translations that haven't been on other versions of games that you they could then implement later on. Like they might be able to take some of these features and do you know, rom-hack style fan build kind of new versions of these <laughs>
1: titles. And at the time recording this, I mean, there's kind of been no backlash from Sony over this, no takedowns or anything as far as we can see, which, you know, obviously when when it happens at Nintendo, normally by the time we talked about it, it's gone. <laughs>
3: Download so. as quickly as possible, guys, yeah, all this so. data.
1: You know, again, we can't really endorse these kind of hacks and leaks and stuff but it is all so interesting isn't it looking at these yeah for the it, first you time. know
3: it's, it's it's kind of been coming out in like little chunks this news has because they've had to basically go go through this whole leak and find these games uh it's really interesting as well that there's some saturn and cdi stuff done and uh ps2 games also xbox and
1: dreamcast ones so you know this is the kind of gift that keeps giving Now, in just a moment, we're going to look back on some of our favourite guests that we've had on the Retro Hour throughout 2021. But now that we've reached the end of another year, we just want to take a moment to give a big thank you to uh, the people who've actually helped us out on our journey and uh, helped us get through another year of doing this podcast. Because seriously, without our patrons, we wouldn't have made it this far.
2: No, absolutely. And, And you are right there. Without the patron, the show literally wouldn't have carried on. We didn't know what we were going to do about a year and a half ago the fans have done it for is we've managed to carry on and it's been absolutely amazing. And, you know, we like to give a little something back. We don't just take the money. We do do the after hours, the extra show, uh, which we have just done, which was all about Christmas, which was really, really fun. And we also do our, uh, monthly hangouts, which we just did last Sunday, which was the Christmas party, which was really fun. Wasn't it?
1: Everyone was wearing NAF Christmas jumpers. Yeah. We all had a bit of a drink. Yeah. You know, what I love about that is, and you know, we've said it over the last couple of months that it really feels now like, almost like a virtual users group.
2: Yeah. hundred percent. Everybody comes on and we all help each other. We all talk about, we all learn something, you know, we all spend yeah. a bit of money as well. Cause we're all talking about the things that we've picked up, but yeah, it, 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 and it's just awesome. Like going through people's collections and just finding out what everybody's been up to, like over the last couple of weeks and stuff like that. Um, but that's not the only thing you get for being a patron. We also do ad free episodes. Um, Dan, Dan, works away and tries to get the episode out sometimes about three days early, usually a day or two mm. early. So yeah, we do like to give back and we do appreciate everything that we do get through the Patreon and also just appreciate everybody who just checks us out and listens to us as well.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we love doing this podcast and uh, our patrons have, you know, if, if you ever thought of a time to join patron, now's actually a very good time because we've got our sixth birthday of this show coming up in two weeks time which does mean unfortunately um all of our costs get suddenly renewed you know website hosting audio all of that suddenly comes out of uh, our bank accounts in january so if you want the time that's um a good time to support this show then maybe just consider doing it you can do it i mean i think our lowest tier is like uh three dollars a month yeah you know, which less, is less like
3: about costly. 70 80p an episode uh for, yeah. for ad free which is amazing
1: you know, we really appreciate any help we get with this. And, uh, of course, um, we continue to pull all lot of our heart and soul and efforts into doing this. And hopefully you'll continue enjoying the show all throughout 2022 as well. Now, before we get into the guests, uh, someone else has been a massive supporter of the Retro Owl podcast, you know, for an entire year. And we're pleased to say they're going to be supporting us again throughout 2022 is our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. How much do we love Bitmap Books?
2: Bitmap Books have been bit- Absolutely amazing for us. And we do absolutely love their books. We were fans of the books before they contacted us about sponsorship. Um, yeah. They're absolutely amazing.
1: And if you want books that are real celebrations, particularly of the visual style of books, I mean, I look over, I've got a, a collection of their books on my shelf next to me now. And, you know, I don't think it's going too far to say these are works of art.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the thing video games are workers of art. And then to yeah. get them kind of put onto the paper into these books, It's just like, you know, you've got that physical work of art there on your shelf. I've got the Master System game, uh, the Master System book, which is just amazing. You always get like two, three hundred pages all about the games and all the pixel artwork. And it's just such high quality images in there as well, which is amazing.
3: And Joe, this week, uh, you know, if you order this month in December, you can get a free pair of Sonic socks as well as you order (laughs) while stocks last. So, you know, that's an extra incentive for you.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So maybe you're at home right now and, you know, you might be off work for a couple of weeks over Christmas. You want something good to have a look at. They've actually reprinted a few of their books that are back in stock now that people have been desperate to get hold of this year. So get them while you can, including a Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium, which is a real celebration. You know, games like Defender of the Crown, Barbarian, Marble Madness, Rainbow Islands, Populous, Cannon Fodder, Worms, all these incredible games, over 420 pages. They've got um, Game Boy, the box art collection, celebrating the boxes of Game Boy games and not just stuff that we got here in the UK or the US also Japanese games in there as well and you know little tidbits in there as well that are going to give you really insightful information into these incredible games and if you love role-playing games their JRPG book is incredible a guide to Japanese role-playing games and we've done an entire episode about that as well Um, a real celebration of that genre dating from you know the earliest days back in the 70s so you can order all of those books they're back in stock now on their website and like Ravi mentioned if you're quick you might even get a free pair of sonic socks as well thanks to our friends at bitmap books check out their website support the show give our sponsors a bit of love bitmapbooks.co.uk and thank you so much to sam and the team at bitmap books for their support of our podcast throughout 2021 right there, what a year it's been for guests on this show shall we go right back to the start of the year then i think this is actually the first guest that we had on the retro hour in 2021. It was an incredible guest. This is Nigel Searle, the former managing director of Sinclair. Of course, this year, tragically, we lost Sir Clive Sinclair. And he was definitely a a genius. But actually, we talked to Nigel a bit We worked very closely with him back in the 80s about how working with Clive was, you know, a real roller coaster and how he was a bit of a misguided genius in many ways.
9: And then, of course, when game software started getting written for the ZX81, that expanded the market enormously. And that was something that Clive really wasn't interested in. He didn't want to be in the games business. I remember when I told him that for one of of the Christmases, probably Christmas 73 maybe, we were going to package the Spectrum in a large box with I think it was six different games on cassette tape. And he, ah, it won't make any difference. He said, won't make any difference. What do you want to do that for? I said, Clive, we've got to do something. We've got to freshen the product in some way or other. And we can negotiate deals with companies like Scion, who will give us one cassette for next to nothing, because if people like that game, they'll buy other Scion games. So we were going to have half a dozen games, did have half a dozen games from half a dozen different manufacturers, uh, producers of games. And, of course, it did incredibly well. The Spectrum was the – although it was never designed to be a games computer, Clyde never wanted it to be a games computer. He had no interest in it being a games computer. But, but that's where most of its success lay.
1: I always got that impression as well because, I mean, there's that famous scene in Microman where he said, you know, he didn't want to be known for Jet Set, Willy I mean, was it kind of a bit of a frustration that these machines were selling by the bucket load to kids who wanted to play games, but he wanted to be seen as a serious computer company, do you think?
9: Yes, I mean, you, you see, Clive, Clive cut corners in the best possible way. He took a product like the Hewlett Packard scientific calculator and said, most people can't afford whatever it was, 395 pounds or something, 50 years ago. Huge amount of money. Most people can't afford that, but they'd accept, you know, three digit, four digit accuracy. That's all they're getting from their slide rule. If that, they'd accept less accuracy if they could buy it for whatever it was 69 quid. Later on, a lot less. And about the scientific calculator, he was absolutely right because it was engineers and people who were buying it. It was no fun to play with. You did have to have a use with. But later on, when he made similar calculations, balancing cost against capability, what it ended up doing was to driving the product down into the recreational area, whether it was the ZX80, 81, or even the Spectrum. People who seriously needed a powerful computer could afford to buy something more powerful. They didn't need to buy the cheapest one on the market. So the cheapest one on the market became the The plaything, and that was great for people who wanted to play. And of course, he made the same trade-off when it came to the first electric vehicle that he did, the C5. If he had understood, that would be a terrific vehicle for recreational purposes. I can't tell you how many people down here in Florida ride three-wheel recumbent bicycles or tricycles. They lie very, very low on them. And nowadays, half of them have got an electric motor attached to them. So if you've ridden 15 miles with the wind behind you and you turn from home and you need a little help, you've got an electric motor. The C5 could, I can't claim that I saw it at the time, but certainly in retrospect, could have had a great market as a recreational thing. But Clive was believed that people could be persuaded to commute to the nearest railway station in it and of course it never found that market because most people just felt it was too dangerous to be on the road.
1: So I love that episode. I mean, you know, even though I didn't grow up with the Spectrum, it's just talking about Sinclair, such a a legendary company here in Britain. And, uh, you know, losing Sir Clive this year, you know, it it kind of does break my heart a bit that we never managed to get Clive on the show. Yeah. Um, But I think, yeah, Nigel's probably the closest we're ever going to get to hearing, you know, stories from the top in those days.
3: Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's good to hear someone's perspective that was,
1: you know, in there yeah right in the thick of it so what about them um, joe then you've uh, you picked out a favorite moment Um this is an episode that we did uh, back in the summer all about namco
2: yeah this was scott rogers um who worked on he worked on a lot of games but he briefly worked for namco in the mid 90s and uh for me whenever i think of namco and the playstation i always think of soul blade uh and he actually did a bit of work on soul blade Um, which was the first ever PlayStation game I played and got. So that was like, for me, a bit of like a surreal moment to actually talk to one of the people who helped translate that game and come up with some of the ideas and stories of that game. Um, So yeah, that was really, really cool for me and just a little bit mind-blowing to have him on. So uh, we're now going to start talking about, funny enough, one of my favourite games of all time and is actually the first ever game I played on PlayStation and the first ever game I played with my dad. Soul blade. Um, oh my now you, soul blade now you mentioned earlier on that you really wasn't impressed with the likes of tekken and battle arena tashinden um what was that like then suddenly working for you're now working for namco and all of a sudden you know you're helping design soul blade what was that like <laughs> what were your
5: ambitions and stuff well now now let me let me curb your expectations because okay. even though i did work on soul blade okay my design input was minimal uh, okay. At the time, I was I had w- been hired to help Bill come up with a bunch of new designs that we were going to turn into the next title that was being made f- by uh, Namco Home Tech, which was the mm-hmm. U.S. division we were working for. However, at the uh, at the same time, Namco was converting. Japanese games for the US market. So they were taking Tekken and putting it on, you know, they were yeah. localizing it and things like that. So a lot of my early work um, my the title that I got hired as at Namco was writer. And so okay. I wrote uh, essentially if you if you played the campaign mode of Soul Blade, uh, I wrote yeah, all the, mode, yeah. the 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 color text for that. So there's things yeah. like, you know, there's kind of backstory. Essentially they I got the the stories from Japan about the characters. Mm-hmm. And some of them made sense and some of them kind of didn't make sense. And so I I went to my boss and I said, look, how much freedom do I have to kind of play with this? And I I had, a, again, I went to film school. I had a screenwriting background. So I was like, I can, you know, write whatever you want. Just let me know how much freedom do I have? And he was like, eh, you know, Japan and U.S., they never – like ever cross like you know the people in Japan Japan play the Japanese games the people in America play the American games it really doesn't matter so I said well I want to be true to what the original creators wrote I don't want to do them a disservice but but I at least had some flexibility to kind of play around with the stuff mm. so I I wrote the you know essentially the backstories and the and the flavor stuff and all the dialogue for for Soul Blade uh, what, what eventually became uh um yeah it was soul edge in japan and it was soul blade yeah. in the us um yeah. and uh so i i wrote that and then i actually i went out to japan pretty early in my employment and um i believe they were finishing up the the port of it or they were finishing up soul edge or something it was soul blade and soul edge were were done i think concurrently if i remember right and they showed me some of the moves i think it was it was either Cervantes or, and I like Cervantes cause I like pirates. So I thought he was pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, or it might've been, um, I always forget the, who's the guy that has the wolf, uh, had uh, axe. Rock, rock. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those characters and they were like, uh, Hey, uh, we have some moves, but we don't really have names for them. Can you give us some cool names? So I like, wrote up i don't know like 10 or 12 different cool names and they picked one of them and to be honest i don't even remember what they were so i've named like a couple of the moves in soul edge soul blade but uh that, but that was really it It was not it was not design work like i didn't i didn't do traditional designer work on that game it was mostly writing and we do cover so
1: much on this show i mean we cover you know consoles that came out in the 80s and 90s we cover home computers sometimes though we go real old school and we talk about things like mainframes and punch cards.
3: Yeah, so I just absolutely loved having uh Chris Crawford on the show and he, I love these episodes where you know you're talking about the really early stuff there, the roots of computing, the roots of video gaming. And uh Chris talks about, you know, mainframes and they were programming with punch cards and he actually made ta- Tactics which was a game that was created using a board and uh a kind of computer game where you'd get the coordinates and stuff it's a really interesting interview and to to hear all about how hard it was to actually get time on those machines and uh, you know how you had to come in in the evening or night time to kind of get access to these computers because uh, you know people would actually provide you access and you'd you'd actually have to go there and uh, book slots it's, it's really interesting to hear about that stuff so here's chris
7: so I did an awful lot of Fortran programming on the mainframes in those days. And mostly what that involved was first you'd uh, type up your program on the punch cards. We used the standard 80-column uh, punch cards. And uh, then you <laughs> you did the, all the punching in what was called the key punch room because the key punch room was isolated from everything else because the key punch machines were extremely loud. Uh these weren't typewriters. These things had to punch holes in some thin cardboard cards. And so they hit hard. And so when you (laughs) pushed a button, there was a loud bang. And then of course as you're typing it's bang, 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 bang. And of course there are a dozen other people in the same room going on. And so it was it was a huge loud cacophony of, of noise. Uh, once you got your cards all set up, then you took them into the I.O. room where uh, you handed your cards to a guy. You, you wrapped them in a uh, rubber band, handed the cards to a guy who then put them in a, a box. And from there, they would be at some point in the future taken into the computer room, which mere mortals were not allowed to enter. And they would run the program, and it would print something out, and then they'd wrap your cards up in the printout and put it in a little box in the outer room. And uh, the other, but this took a while because there were so many programs running, and so there was always there was something called the tat board. Tat meant turn around time, and they it was a chalkboard where they'd say. Tat, uh, three hours. Uh, tat, eight hours. During the day, it would be typically eight hours. So if you had a lot of work to do, you'd come in at two in the morning when the turnaround time was maybe 30 minutes. And so you could actually do interaction. You could put something in, see what happened. A short time later, put in another round. And that's the way we did computing back then. Well, you
3: mentioned that your dad was in the Air Force. Like back then, was was it kind of military and educational scientific people that had access to computers and not the general public?
7: Well, my dad was a civilian engineer for the Air Force, um, but he, uh, at the Air Force base where the uh, computer was, that was a general purpose computer that did all the work for the whole base. And so there were a lot of people using it. And so uh, I was using a terminal, which uh, was part of it. This was time sharing back then. That is, they could have 20 terminals scattered around the base and you could put in your input and it would go to the computer and the computer would get around to processing it normally within a minute and then shoot the output back at you. And it came out in one of the standard terminals of the day, which looked like big typewriters on pedestals with uh, printer paper coming out of them. Well, what kind
1: of programs were you writing on these machines?
7: Well, while I was a student, I was uh, writing basically various kinds of research programs. I was pursuing a number of different research projects over the years. Uh, One was on the time series of meteor observations. That was something I was always interested in. Do they come randomly or not? Again, my uh, master's thesis was on dynamical parallaxes. I also did a number of little bits and pieces uh, for, some, uh, for some of the professors, various little bits, uh, fairly short programs, a few hundred lines. That was about all. When I, was at, uh, when I was teaching, I had two main programs I worked on. The first was an educational program for my students called Black Hole Chicken, where they uh, guided a rocket around a black hole and tried not to fall in, but they had to come as close to the uh, Schwarzschild radius as possible without falling in. And then I also did my very first war game on that IBM 1130. And it turned out to be pretty good, considering the restrictions. I called it Tanktix, it was a tactical armored combat game played on a hex grid, and that in itself was uh, rather ambitious. The mathematics of calculating things in hex grids are a lot messier than rect grids, the rectangular, you know, squares.
1: Yeah, and of course, if you want to check out the full episodes, I will link them up in our show notes. I love that chat with Chris as well. Someone else who we've had on the podcast a couple of times now and is always incredible value because, you know, we talked about Games Master before. It was a guy who fronted Games Master, the original series back in the day. Dominic Diamond, who uh, back in the summer, came on for a second chat with us after the in-depth interview that we did with him last year, uh, talking about the new book, that hopefully we're going to get in our hands next summer. I believe the Kickstarter is now saying it's going to be May next year. Um, but we talked to Dominic about who he got to do the foreword for the book, because obviously they had a lot of celebrities on Games Master back then. And it turns out that there could be a potentially very interesting podcast that could come out of this.
5: Well,
3: I've seen there's a lot of quotes from uh, celebrities here, and you've got like Robbie Williams doing the foreword as well
10: that was the loveliest thing i think about the whole book so we were talking me and uh, jack the editor and we were saying like who could we get to do the forward and we were trying to think well let's have a guest that was on the show and we thought well who's a guest that was on the show is still really big today but also represents 90s culture so much and basically it was it came down to robbie or zoe ball I really they were the, they were the kind of two in the shortlist so Jack had written to um, uh, Robbie's agent, and then he said to me, he said, listen, I'll tell you what might help this. He said, Dominic, why don't you send an email uh, to Robbie via his agent? And I'm like, oh, I don't know if he wants to bother with the likes of me these days. So I did it anyway, what I thought was an amusing little note and it was the most surreal thing it was like i get up in the morning in in the 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 frigid wastes of calgary north of the wall in canada and there's an email from someone called rob w i'm like who's that and i click it and it's this fantastic email from robbie in los angeles uh, not only with the foreword already written, it, it just the greatest foreword I could have possibly dreamed of, full of enthusiasm and how much she's loved the joystick and it's, you know, it's been every house he's had since. And, but also <laughs> this great little thing about how are you doing? You know, what was the 90s like? And, you know, I've left all that stuff behind me now. I just, I'm, I'm wanting to start gardening. So then I replied, I'm like, oh, Robbie, I love gardening these days. So there was about a week where I was swapping tips with Robbie and guiding him on... <laughs> (laughs) things like horse manure so that was a lovely little (laughs) that was a lovely little bonus to happen as a result of the book
1: i'm looking forward to the dominic diamond and robbie williams gardening podcast
0: (laughs) (laughs) that would be brilliant
1: how much do you want to hear the dominic diamond and robbie williams gardening podcast i tell you we still need
3: to have gardening in this show it would it would our main rivals are gardeners world so it would really push us over the
1: edge Yeah, I'm thinking Ravi's Gardener Slots for twenty twenty two. Could is it is it Granny's Garden? That's a video game we could yeah, talk about.
3: Use green beans, uh toilet rolls for green beans. That's a tip. tip.
1: Well, let's get another clip from Joe then. Um this, I mean, I, I love listening to this. I wasn't on this interview, but um, you know, the strike games, I love those back in the day. And uh, you were fortunate enough to chat to Flint Dilly.
2: Yeah, we spoke to him about, you know obviously his work on the strike games and for me this is quite a, a funny running order for me because of, we spoke about soviet strike which was the second ever playstation game i played and the game i got with soul blade so once again,
1: this podcast is just your life in it's gaming just my right? life in
2: gaming so uh yeah really really surreal moment again um i really enjoyed kind of talking about the controversies around soviet strike um and you know and just how that actually made the game bigger um but it was a really fun episode so was it quite scary writing the scripts and stuff for Soviet Strike cuz obviously Urban Strike, Jungle Strike and Desert Strike they actually had they were quite controversial games for the time you know because of the themes and what was happening in the games were you worried about any backlash or did it just kind of help project it you know further like make it sell better and stuff Well,
11: yeah I mean uh, here's the deal I mean you think about my career up to that point I'm working hmm. on Dungeons and Dragons and you got people saying it's satanic I'm working on yeah. you know night Trap, <laughs> and you got Joe Lieberman waving the, you know the game around. <laughs> I'm working on you know uh, something else. He he waved. Oh, I think double switch, but there was something else that he decided was going to destroy you know destroy people's lives. And so we were just so used to it, and and frankly, in some ways, more controversial than any of that was a game. We skipped this, but it's an interesting little note here uh, for the first Gulf War, right? The yeah. 1991 Gulf War. We did a game called, well, I was working with the guys at TSR on a uh, Middle East, you know, simulate combat simulation game because remember at that point TSR owned um, SPI. And so we had, we were still doing mid, uh, hardcore military games. And hmm. more importantly, they had the Tom Clancy license and they did Red Storm Rising and Hunt for Red October. And okay. so we, we and, and and George Bush had said, I've drawn a line in the sand and he actually set a date where if Saddam Hussein didn't get out of Kuwait, we we're going to start bombing. So we knew we had to ship the game on the deadline by the deadline, right? Yeah. And and so we changed the Middle East uh, uh, simulation game into a Gulf War simulation game, and were play testing it mm-hmm. and, and realized, well, if you're the Americans, you know, you don't. <laughs> there's no reason. There's no reason to ever go into. Iraq until you've just like blown these guys into submission and you know because we had all the real live you know you know Jane's military stats and everything else I mean we had a pretty good idea we didn't know about F-117s and really all the capability we didn't know about JDAMs and and the real capabilities of Tomahawks but we we had a pretty good idea what you know total air superiority would, would mean so we released the game with two sets of rules one was the realistic set of rules where if you're the Americans, you just stand off and degrade the Iraqis, you know, for the entire game. Yeah. And and then the other was the uh, you know, the the like playable set of rules, which were the Americans had to go in and you actually had to have battles. And the guys at the air war college thought it was so funny that a bunch of boobs that made video I made, you know, board games had pretty much figured out what the strategy was. Only because we were play testing and you couldn't have any other strategy if you have real yeah. human lives on the line. So uh, we got invited to the Air War College to speak at at a uh, convention called Connections, and and I met you know some of the coolest people. I met John Warden, who was the actual strategist for the first Gulf War, wrote the Air War Doctrine for it, and Jim Dunnigan, who, if you've never read the Quick and Dirty Guide to War, that's that is what Soviet Strike, the mentality of it came out of. Mm. And he, he designed a lot of games, you know, a lot of uh, military simulation games. There were a bunch of guys, Bruce Shelley, who used to go there, uh, Sid Meier go there, you know. I mean, just an incredible collection of people. That was sort of an essential step in it is, de- you know, designing, you know, hardcore military strategy games, you know, was, was very helpful later on.
1: Now, we spoke to Brenda Romero on the show a few months ago as well. Um, of course, just an icon in the video games industry. And one thing that we kind of find when we're talking to a lot of these veteran developers is that D&D connection. Dungeons and Dragons is kind of where it all began, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and like Brenda started out working um, for Sirtek when she was like 15 and uh, learning wizardry and doing support with that. And D&D is a huge foundation of kind of gaming and it got a lot of people in the industry so it's really fascinating interview with her to you know kind of hear how she went into that games design role
12: so your things eventually write themselves in that situation but during this moping phase my mother um my mother decides well, look if you're if she's going to be exiled at home and you know, sort of mope around maybe maybe the best thing to do is just to get you know get her get her something so so somehow she she managed to get this Vic 20, uh, and that that was a huge part of it. And then D and D, D and D comes along, and to me that that changed everything because I, it was I already had an overactive imagination, and suddenly this gave me a rule set for that overactive imagination. Uh, so I could build anything. In fact, they didn't need to go outside, and I I. <laughs> going outside is absolutely fine and I probably still didn't need to go outside, but I, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and I would say like, I know D and D it was, uh, was critical to, to even, you know, my husband's career, like Quake was a character in D and D, the name of id software, the I and the D in that originally come from, uh, the name of their D and D group, which was in demand. Yeah. So it, it D and D is, is, you know, just, I mean, it's kind of like the parchment on which this industry is, is
3: written. 100%. We've had so many guests that talk about D&D and how instantly they transferred into the industry.
12: Yeah, it's even when we're looking to, still to this day, when we're looking to hire game designers, I always, I, I have a bit of a question. If you know somebody goes, well, yeah, no, I've never played D&D. How? How have you, have you never played D&D? Um, because I consider it to be, to me it's a foundational text of the game industry it is it is it's abs- it's just necessary it just it um yeah it's just a, it's a foundational text it's critical well
3: when you joined Certec, um you, you were using the vic 20 before um you, did you start using apple II machines and uh, you learned pascal i understand
12: I did. So I, well, I started using Apple II machines, and that was one of the great benefits of joining Sirtech. I mean, there I had access to technology that there's zero chance we could have ever afforded. Um, And they didn't have a problem with me, even though my hours initially were from four to eight. uh, I would come in for, oh, geez, I'd come in as soon as I could get out of school, and I would stay as, you know, stay as late as my mother would let me stay. Um, I, you know, and I had the benefit of working around some, some great people like Robert Woodhead, uh, you know, who is uh, obviously uh, one of the co-creators of Wizardry or Arthur Brito uh, for Rescue Raiders. You know, I, I worked, you know, in the, well, you know, I can't say right next to, there were, a, a, it, we, I worked in the same office. There were several places that were all in, in part of the Ogdensburg mall where, where SurTech was located.
3: How big was SirTech? Like, uh, what was the atmosphere like back then as well?
12: So I, well, when I first started the company, started the company, no, I didn't. When I first, <laughs> when I first started at the company, hmm, I'd say there were probably twenty people, maybe. Um, the development was even Robert Woodhead was there, Arthur Brito was there, so there was some development happening at the time. There was marketing, PR, accounting, uh, in you know the the executives and founders of the company, and then production. I my job was uh, pre-internet, pre-FAQ, so I was the FAQ, and people would you know I would I, I can you imagine being 15 and getting a job like this? Um, I just had to memorize the games and uh when people called and asked questions i would tell them what the answers to those questions were and i still to this day those questions and answers are so deeply embedded in my head i can still uh if people ask me questions about wizardry i can still answer them as if i were on the call um but there i so i find out that wizardry i i know basic i feel like i've done everything i can do in basic you know many programmers especially back then realize that they can only do so much with basic especially because basic is slow so i wanted to know what the next thing was that i needed to do and i knew um that wizardry uh, was written in usd c pascal and so that to me seemed to be the next thing i needed to learn and so i absolutely i begged uh, uh, (laughs) i begged 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 the um the high school where i was at to please offer a course in pascal so that was the next programming language for me and then when I went to college I I took assembly language but coding was um you know for me I I ended up on the design side which I regret in fact I can say well wait a minute let me correct that I don't regret being a designer I love being a designer I regret letting go of the code
1: Yeah, such an interesting lady. So definitely worth checking out that full episode with Brenda Romero, if you've not heard it already. Now, we spoke to someone who um, I used to watch when I was a kid. I remember a series of documentaries that were shown over here on Channel 4 back in the mid-90s called... The Triumph of the Nerds, and this was by a guy called Robert Cringley, who um, is a historian all about the computer industry, and you may know that a couple of years ago there was that lost Steve Jobs interview that was actually released, that it turns out at the time, I mean, we got so many insights into that kind of early part of silicon valley from robert who was there covering it all at the time but i love this chat that he had with us all about kind of what it was like you know working with these pioneers many of which can be quite difficult you know guys like uh, bill gates and steve jobs and i think none of them more difficult it turned out than jobs himself we're back to your steve jobs interview I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, that was a unique moment, I thought, because you had Steve, who at the time, he, he was observing Apple as an outsider at that stage, wasn't he? Do you think that kind of made that interview quite unique compared to all the ones that we've seen?
0: Well, I think a bunch of things made it unique. Uh, but yeah, it was 90, 1995. It was, Next was in decline, but still running. Uh, we shot it at Next headquarters and he hadn't gone back to Apple and he couldn't even imagine going back to Apple. So we, so he was ruthlessly honest at the time about both companies. You know, he, 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 he didn't particularly want to talk about next because he was already dismissing the effort. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting time. We were very lucky to catch him as we did, but when he came back to Apple, when, you know, he got a, a board seat out of it and he saw Gil Emilio, I knew and I believe I wrote at the time, that there was no way that Steve was going to allow Gil to run things because Gil, while a perfectly reasonable manager, was hardly a visionary, and he was flailing so, and the company was flailing so, that Steve just you know, stepped up and, and took it over, and that didn't surprise me in the least.
1: Yeah, just from watching that as well, I did kind of notice, I don't know if you kind of got the same vibe as well, that Steve at that time in '95, he seemed quite bitter about Microsoft's success as well, I mean, you know, imagine Windows 95, the big launch was happening around then. Did you kind of get that vibe off him, that he was a bit bitter of Bill Gates' success?
0: Uh, You know, I'll tell you a funny story. I I was, in 98, I pitched an article to Vanity Fair magazine. I was going to do a story about the relationship between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and part of it was going to be how they viewed each other. And uh, Graydon Carter, who was the editor of Vanity Fair thought. That's great. Let's do it. And so I contacted Steve and said, doing this story for Vanity Fair, I'm going to talk, you know, I'll talk to you, I'll talk to Bill and, you know, I'll talk to a few other people and we'll we'll get a great story out of it. Let's do it. And at the time, 98, you know, Apple needed publicity. This was a good thing. And Steve, said, Steve immediately called Graydon Carter up on the phone to make sure it was correct and to try to somehow get control of it. And Graydon stood up to him, which was good. And so, uh, so Steve got back to me and he said, I'll do it, but you have to get Bill first. And so I had to then take the project to Bill and get him, you know, get him to sit down for an hour with me and to talk about Steve Jobs. The thing about getting an interview with Bill Gates is that it is, it can be difficult, but it always happens. You know, it's just procedures and dates and date books and schedules. And, you know, eventually if you, if you put in the legwork, it'll happen. So it took me about eight weeks to get an interview with Bill. And so I went up to Seattle and I did the interview with Bill and it was fun. It was great. He was thrilled to be talking about Steve. And so we just talked about Steve and then I finished and I went home and I, Sent a message to Steve and said, "Okay, I've got Bill now. When can we schedule your interview?" And Steve said, "I don't think so." So Steve killed the, uh-huh. Steve killed the project by refusing the interview. But he but he made me jump through hoops. He wasted weeks of my time. He wasted an hour of Bill's time. And th- this is the kind of sick guy he could be where he did it just to be an asshole.
1: Now, Joe, I know you always love it when we get the YouTubers on, you know, being someone who spends pretty much every evening instead of watching telly on YouTube.
2: Yeah, I, I I, don't watch TV. I watch YouTube videos. I fall asleep to YouTube videos. And I always have to sneak a YouTuber in there when we do our best bits. Um, And this was actually one of the first episodes of 2021. We had Norm, the gaming historian on, who is actually one of my favorite YouTubers of all time. He's probably like, maybe in my top three channels mm. um and i just loved having him on and talking to him and just talking to him like you know me obviously as close to getting to meeting him as possible and just kind of realizing he's a real person you know for me these youtubers are like celebrities so it was really fun uh, and the part i picked which which i really loved that he that he even made an episode about this and then that we spoke about it but we spoke about the facts that he got wrong um, and I just really enjoyed how humble he was and you know how like open and stuff he was about it so yeah here we go
13: I had gotten a message from somebody who pointed out an error in um in a previous video and I went back and looked at it and I was like I can't believe I got that wrong like I can't believe I made that error and i I had I had just seen from previous experience, other people that when somebody points out an error uh, and you know, like, like you said, you you can't be wrong on YouTube. And I I guess I wanted to change the perspective that yes, we are not robots. I am a human being and I am prone to errors. Um, Especially when it comes to history Uh, you know, new stuff comes out all the time with history and it's very common for historians to make errors. Uh, so I guess I just wanted to let people know that I'm human and I do make mistakes. And I guess I wanted to poke fun at myself a little as well. So that's why I made that video. It was fun looking back at my early videos and just seeing like the production quality and like what I was doing. Did
1: you miss your long hair?
13: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) I always love it when Joe over everything. Oh, yeah, I I always (laughs) do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Norm was incredible. I definitely want to listen back to that episode. Like you said, the fact, you know, not many people go back and actually admit they're wrong. So, you know, it was very brave of him to do that, I think. Now, this year, we've had some amazing guests on. And one thing that I think the more that we do this show as the years go by, you know, we're coming up to six years now that we've been doing this. I think we're often reminded how important it is to capture these stories for future generations because we've had a lot of people on the show now who are sadly no longer with us and um someone we only had on a couple of months ago who we found out a week later had unfortunately passed away was rob Rinnard.
3: yeah i i, I absolutely loved motocross madness when i was a kid and mm. i thought it was a real pioneering game when like um graphics cards just came in and the kind of pentium chips and uh, it really pushed the limits and uh rob came on and it's still quite shocking that um he passed away so so quickly. Since doing the episode, this is probably his last interview uh, out there. Yeah, and he talks in this about um, LAN parties, how much fun they were, and uh, how how Bill Gates reacted to uh, seeing the game. Another another aspect of it that was really huge and good fun back then were LAN games. Did you ever have any uh, big? motocross madness lamp parties
6: because <laughs> um, it, it it got out of control we started doing <laughs> friday nights you know so we could do eight eight players at a time in mcm and um friday nights folks started from around phoenix started showing up at the studio and we'd race until 10 a.m or noon on saturday I mean, there was there was a lot of smoking and drinking and playing going on for many, many hours. We'd get two or three groups of eight people racing at once. And it got to where um, I had a friend, Roger, he owned a racetrack in New Mexico. He would drive 10 hours just to come over here and play. Guys drove in from from L.A., some of Steph's friends and whatnot. They would come in from L.A. to play. And then um, Stephen Cameron, he ran a big Xbox gaming site. He lives in Canada couple times a year, he'd hop a flight and fly down to Phoenix just to hang out and, and race with us. So yes, we did a lot of it and it got out of control.
1: Well, the ragdoll effects and the crashes, I mean, they were great fun in the game and you know, hilarious as well. I mean, was it a huge focus on getting them as kind of realistic as possible?
6: Yeah. You know, at first we had no idea. We were focused on make the bike fun to drive, make a fun racing game, well-designed racetracks. But then all of a sudden... When we would crash, we found ourselves laughing hysterically when it was a particularly violent crash, so that just woke us up and we watched we watch kids play, and you know some of them they would just crash the bike over and over and over so yeah that that refocused our attention, and we spent a lot more time creating different presets of animation so that we had like an, an over the handlebars animation and over the left side over the right side height we call it high siding. And then the, the come, come down straight too hard and just, you know, bottom out the suspension and go flying. So we ended up with like six different categories of animations because it proved to be so incredibly entertaining. And we, we knew after, like after that, we spent probably more time on the rider than we did on the bike. Well,
1: Cross Madness 2, um, even though it was only two years later, it kind of felt like the industry, you know, technology was moving really fast around that time. Um, and obviously you had the improved graphics, you know, you had trees and stuff in there as well. Over 40 tracks in that game too. It felt like a much more complete package. How did you improve the engine of the original game and take advantage of this, you know, more powerful hardware that people had then?
6: Yeah. So the, uh, as far as the ground goes, we were able to do um, multi-texture layers so we had like a high resolution texture for the ground. and Then we had a low resolution detail texture that tiled, that added a depth that made it look like the ground was just higher resolution everywhere. Um, certainly the trees and the ecosystem was a big deal, I think. And I'm kind of fuzzy on these numbers. Mark would probably yell at me. But I think we had upwards of 100,000 trees out there. Mm-hmm. So going from zero to 100,000 was, was quite a number. Actually, I remember one day we were, we were at Microsoft demoing it for Bill Gates First, I had the Microsoft guys gave me a bet that I couldn't say shrubbery more uh, more than five times in the demo, <laughs> um, so I, I kept pointing out the amazing shrubberies to Bill as we were driving. And here's here's a different style of shrubbery here for you to for you to see, and then at one. We were running a debug build and in the debug build, the camera collision against the ground was shut off so that the, deb- the artists could um, take the camera down below the ground and look up at things because sometimes it helped you see errors that were hard to see from above the ground. And we're riding along and, you know, Bill doesn't say a lot in the demos. He's just looking for something to nitpick. So we're driving along and I, I like driving with the camera down real low and I, I clipped the side of a hill and it just for a split second, it went under the ground. He goes, what was that? And I go, oh, um, and I, I saw the, like, Microsoft team just freak out. Like, they, they were utterly terrified that Bill was going to light them up for something. Yeah, and I stopped, and I go, oh, actually, check this out. This is kind of cool. So I stopped, and I put the camera completely under the ground and flew it around. And I'm like, well, from under the ground, so, you know, the... It would, when you're under the ground, the terrain shuts off because the, the, the normals all just face up. You can get a good idea of the density of all of our shrubbery that we have down here from below the, below the ground. And, um, and then the Microsoft guys are back there laughing and Bill's like, oh, that's cool. This is completely amazing. And you are like, yeah, thanks. And, you know, put the camera back up and took off. But there was like one second there that they thought that, oh, no, you know, this, this is the end, end of our career because Bill's about to drop the hammer on us.
1: Yeah, so it was incredible that we were able to record Rob's story before he uh, sadly passed away. And, of course, uh, our thoughts are with his um, friends and family. Yeah, rest um, in peace, Rob. Yeah, really difficult time, but, you know, we're pleased that we were able to share that with you all. Um, now, we did pass a landmark this year, episode 300 of this podcast that we recorded on Halloween, actually. And it was the first episode of this show that we actually did live, wasn't it, to our patrons? Yeah,
3: yeah, that was really good fun. I, c- I can't believe... We've hit that mark as well.
2: Uh, we hit that mark and we didn't blow up Dan's studio with like the eight <laughs> and the
3: five computers. It was hot in there though, wasn't yeah. it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> but it was amazing to do it.
1: Yeah, we were joined by um, Clint from LGR, Kim Justice, Dimitris from Modern Vintage Gamer, uh, one of my favourite episodes of this podcast that we've ever done. It was just, you know, a real honest chat about all things retro gaming and retro technology. And I love this moment in there where we got their opinions. Obviously, you know, these are content creators who cover this stuff all the time and we thought we'd get their thoughts on what the future of retro is going to be
6: uh remakes and remasters i think is is the is the way forward really i mean i've i worked on quake um we've got Mm -hmm. other games at night dive that we're working on that we're bringing back i mean i think a lot of studios a lot of publishers are really big on on remakes now um whether the remake is is better than the original is kind of irrelevant but um i think there's i think a lot of publishers are seeing the value of remaking i mean dead space was announced for a remake um there's i I think really that's kind of the way forward with with with, um you know the next kind of generation or two of of video games i think there's a lot of value there for that that kind of stuff
1: what do you think ken
14: i think um yeah, remakes again is something that seems to become quite normalised. I remember a few years ago, you'd get a remake announced and a lot of people would complain. And it seems like gradually less and less people are kind of almost just seeing it as remake remasters. Even in like cases where it's a game that's only a couple of years old, that seems to then suddenly get a remake come out for it. Um, I think as far as um, the future goes, I mean, certainly it seems like all of this is going to be digital. a start i mean the physical physical media just seems to be not long for this world especially when it comes to new games and even for older games whether it's the prices going up to ridiculous levels being pushed up through rather illicit means or the general degradation of physical media goes in general you're going to see more and more retro people turn into things like the mr and raspberry pies and so forth to Mm. get an authentic experience which I think in, in some ways not it's not necessarily bad at all because, I mean, that opens anything that kind of like that, that opens it up more to people is something I'm here for. I mean, if we were still just relying on physical media for our old games, as opposed to everything else, and the prices going up as it is, it become a much more insular hobby and it would just die out in the end.
3: Mm. And yeah. and you're getting like diskless systems coming out and stuff, and they're often the cheaper option, so more people might might be getting them, you know discs and physicality seem to be a bit of a
1: luxury, like <laughs> you know. That's like swearing to our ears. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I,
2: I I was literally thinking, like, I can't imagine Clint's too happy about that with like, where things well, are going.
15: Yeah. the The weird thing is, I bought one of those discless systems with the Oh, PS4. wow! <laughs> because I realized oh. that with the PS4s, I had the PS4 and a PS4 Pro, and I bought a grand total of two physical games for that entire wow. platform. Oh, but okay. I had over a hundred digitally, just because it was it was getting easier at that point when I finally oh. got a an internet connection that wasn't throttled and, you know, had caps and all these things. So it made more sense at that point just because I don't play consoles very much at all. I, I play stuff mostly on PC and everything on PC is pretty much digital. It's been that way for such a long time that I was already getting used to it. And so by the time the PS5 came around, I'm like, well, fine, this one's available and I I, <laughs> I purchased it and it's been, been okay. Uh, and if, for these kind of systems anyway, it doesn't really seem like having The physical copy makes much more of a difference to preservation anyway, because all these servers are going to go down or some other thing is going to break or they're just going to re-release it or redo it in some other form. Or hopefully, eventually, it'll all be uh, able to be emulated and imitated and simulated on some like that's my dream is that retro just goes to a completely platform agnostic thing where we're just running code on some other device. We don't have to rely on old things at all. That would be great. I mean, which seems a little absurd considering how much <laughs> of what I do <laughs> relies on the old hardware and software, yeah. but I know that yeah, that's... I
2: you're breaking my heart with your realism
15: <laughs> like, like, I'm like, oh my god <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm physically surrounded by old games and boxes and i've got a massive collection of things over there and i just i've been enthralled with this original xbox over there that i got the other week and it's like i'm having a ton of fun with that but i know that we're in this weird little finite period of time where it's just a transition to whatever's next and I don't know, I just sort of ex- accepted, I guess, five or six years ago where it's like this, this is where it's going and you either embrace it now and have fun now or you just get really cranky and, uh, uh, you know, I think both are, are they're valid, but <laughs> somewhere in between for me is where I found the most enjoyment because there's that, that, that trade-off between uh, ease of access right now versus not having it at all later in the future. And I know that they're constantly tugging at each other because, you know, we're making trade-offs now uh, by not being able to have these things in the future, perhaps.
1: So yeah, definitely worth checking back episode 300. And there's a video version of that on our YouTube as well. If you want to check it out, I'll link that up in our show notes. Now, one that we had recently and actually has made a few headlines. I saw that um, Nintendo Life and a few other news sources have actually been running this as a pretty major headline over the last couple of days is from an interview that we did last month with Mark Sabotnik.
2: Yeah, we only did this. Yeah, like you say, it was about three weeks ago. Um, and we were talking about what happened to Geist Force, you know, the unreleased Dreamcast game that Mark Sputnik was working on. Um, for me, this was probably my number one interview for the year. Um, it was an emotional roller coaster when he told the story. And, you know, my heart sank. I also got goosebumps. Um, and I just I loved how honest he was. And he literally said, you know what? It's been 20 years. Let's just talk about it. Um so yeah, this is Mark Spartan's story on what happened to Geist Force. So
4: this is a sad story, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the truth. And if it comes back to bite me for telling the truth here, so be it. Um, because there's no love loss in how this this actually went down. The team was um was doing decently well. Uh we had started to really discover fun. We were um challenges on getting the cutscenes done. We had pulled in a third-party company and some of that. We were hitting some bumps in the road on, but otherwise we were we were doing all right. We had shown at TGS, uh, and people were were relatively uh, excited about the progress of the game, and it was it looked amazing, and, and people were quite excited about um, how it looked. And to be honest, for a launch title, that's really what you want, right? Something that you put in and go, okay, that's why I got a next gen system. Nice if it plays well too, but prior, job one was making sure that it looked pretty, so it did. Naka came to visit with his team to tour our studio, look at our tools and engine, which we had a lot of proprietary, really phenomenal uh, tech going. I would say still to this day, some stuff that I haven't seen replicated quite at the level we had. And he didn't realize that the, um, the white people on my team, a lot of them spoke fluent Japanese, Mm. including my lead engineer. And, uh, started speaking in Japanese, assuming that no one would understand, started talking about what parts of our tech they were going to take for Sonic US, uh, and then basically said, as soon as they ship, fire everyone but one of the engineers who knows their system, and uh, roll him onto our team for Sonic. And my team heard all that. So you can imagine how they felt. Yeah, yeah. Here's a leader of Sega. I mean, Naka's... Pretty powerful at Sega at that time. There was two camps. There was the Naka camp and the U Suzuki camp. I'm sure you've got that well documented in, in your previous chats with others. Uh, that's, you know, that's also history now and, and known. Um, but he, he wielded quite a bit of power. So uh, I had a group of five engineers that now knew that that was potentially happening to their baby. They were outside of Visual Concepts, the only people in North America working on a 128-bit gaming console. Pretty easy to go get another job. So they did. Yeah. And I had to go to Bernie and tell him I just lost my five lead engineers. I got a proprietary engine. Even if I hire, I got a burn rate of X. I won't quote that. I'm not going to go into all his yeah. dirty secrets, but a healthy burn rate for that time. Yeah, you know, we were an expensive title, launch title for, for that time. Nowadays we wouldn't have been a indie time be like <laughs> a really cheap indie title, but for then it was a lot of money. Mm. Um it was impossible to justify nor get you know, it would have taken me two months to hire, another two months to ramp up, um, and then, you know, so um four months of burn rate where pretty much nothing's happening. So um we went to visual concepts and I had a chat with Greg and Scott and said, "Hey any chance you have the bandwidth to take this on they didn't um, they were more than willing to give us space to finish the game there if we could get you know funding or the team with total support you know not not nothing negative against them at all they were amazing um, but we just couldn't find a way to land it and uh, had to go tell the team hey the rest of the time we're here work on your
1: resumes I've got a feeling Eugene Nack is going to be getting on the next plane and duffing you up there, Joe. Yeah, or, he might uh,
2: do.
5: Putting that story yeah, he's out there. flying all of his space planes as a...
3: You know, the thing I love about that interview is, you know, we, we've we done a lot more kind of console-y stuff this year. and I think we've got a lot more diversity around the interviews. And uh, it was great to start getting some stories from Sega and mm. stuff like that, which, uh, you know, Joe, definitely, you were in
2: your element there. Oh, yeah, 100%.
1: Yeah, and there's hopefully more of that to come as we get into 2022 as well. So what a year it's been for interviews. Um, your final best of the year then, Ravi. And this was um, someone who is just an icon in the dance music industry, you know, particularly drum and bass. We've got DJ Aphrodite on the show back in the early part of the oh, year. You
3: know, I love those kind of old school tunes and uh, especially people that used Amiga to make them. And uh, Aphrodite is actually an absolute legend and someone that I've listened to throughout my childhood, and I'm sure you have, Dan, as well, and it was just yeah. amazing to have them on the show and add to people like Pete Cannon that we had on the show as well this year and just some amazing musicians.
8: the two Amigas were in sync, then the track could be played.
3: And were, were they, like, literally Amiga 500s, and was it just a case of listening to the click track and then hitting spacebar at the uh, right time?
8: Yeah, I mean, for example... Um... At the beginning of your track, I have four blocks of clicks and then one block of silence. The other Amiga will have three blocks of clicks and one block of silence. So he gets his mouse ready at the end of my first block and then plays his one and then we'll speed up and slow down to get the click in um in sync so that you know so it's flanging really tightly through the speakers. Um, we did that with actually four computers. But because there was too many things playing at the same time, it got a bit messy. It always sounded better the less tracks you had playing um, because less is more with music production.
1: Yeah, and I think there might be a tendency for a lot of, especially new producers, to just kind of throw everything in there and try and overcomplicate things.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Since I've gone from Amiga to Logic, I'm guilty of the same thing myself.
1: Um, well talk us through a bit about that kind of um, Amiga setup that you had then. You had the four Amiga five hundreds then. I mean, did you have samplers? What what kind of things were you running these through?
8: No, no, no. For for the for the very first one in 1990, it was just four Amigas. That was it. We did have a guitar on one of them. Um, but when we went to two Amigas, say so the first the first single, Some Justice, that was literally just two Amigas. And how we mixed that down was it went into a standard Numa mixer, DJ mixer with four channels. We got the balance as best we could and the EQ as best we could from the samples and from the Amiga, and then it went into the DJ mixer. There was a little bit of oral exciter, and then it went straight onto the onto the deck.
1: So there you go. If you want to check out any of these interviews, maybe you got a couple of weeks off over Christmas and maybe there's some bits in here you thought, oh, I missed that episode. I'll put them all in our show notes as well. I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone. Not only all of our guests that have been on the show and taken their time to talk to us this year, everyone that's listened to an episode, anyone that's got in touch with us on social media, anyone that's retweeted an episode or tagged their friends in it, anyone who's donated to us on Patreon seriously it's just all come together to make an incredible year for this show i think
2: 100 it's been amazing and just thank you to everybody who's
1: checked us out so we are going to be putting our feet up for the uh, the only week of the year that we take off we're going to have a, a bit of a, i think it's fair to say well-deserved break after an incredible year on this podcast thank you again for checking us out in 2021 i hope you get to enjoy a little bit of peace and quiet and a bit of time with the family over the next couple of weeks have a very merry christmas and we will see you again in 2022. Merry Christmas. Ciao. Ciao.